Welcome to the Love Examine playlist. We're solving love one song at a time. Uh, welcome back, everyone, to the Love Examined uh, podcast. Uh, Avram, how are you? I'm good. I'm good. How you doing, Ellie? Everything's good. Um, so to this episode, we are talking about um, an artist named Cody Fry um, and his really lovely song, Photograph. Um, Cody Fry is a Nashville-based uh, musician. Um, who right now is probably most well-known for the fact that he made an 80-piece orchestral arrangement of Eleanor Rigby, um, posted it on TikTok, and is now nominated for a Grammy for it. Um, so it's a pretty cool story. He's a young guy. He's you know a bit of a musical prodigy and has been writing music since his early, early teens. Um, and so when I came across, first of all, the Eleanor Rigby um, cover is quite spectacular. Um, but I started to look into some of his other music and I came across this lovely little ballad that I think encapsulates a lot of his unique sort of, um, way of composing songs that have this sort of almost an old Cole Porter slash orchestra sort of feel to them. You know, it's very epic and very, um, um, Broadway sounding almost sometimes. Um, so we thought we would look at, uh, at Cody Fry. What did you think of the song, Abram? Well, the song itself, it's a piano, it's a ditty. It's not the kind of music that I uh, generally listen to, but uh, I knew nothing about this artist. I don't knew nothing about the song, which is sort of what I sort of like about the podcast. When you throw songs at me that I, I don't know, it channels something, some sort of create creative uh, flash uh, within me. So that was kind of fun to sort of dig in and what's he talking about here? And one of the things, one of the nice surprises about this song lyrically is he touches on the issue of what happens when a couple moves from the, the dyad of two people to considering bringing in a baby and ponders the question, what's going to happen to the we, or he, what he refers to as the us. And as I mentioned to you bef before via text, there are very few songs that I can think of, at least in the pop canon, that talk about children and babies. It's just not very mm -hmm. rock and roll. Um, I think the only one I can think of I mentioned to you was Palanka's Having My Baby. Mm -hmm. um, which my late father used to listen to over and over in the car. And I, I really, uh, that's uh, Paul Anka is a whole other story, but anyways, so that's the <laughs> oh, other there was, Okay. So there was Madonna, Papa, Papa don't preach, which is all about, you know, the, she's keeping her baby and you know, this whole kind of thing. So yeah, you're right. But it's not like a frequent theme. Um, and I actually am really happy that we, we, we were going to do the song. One of the thing, reasons I flagged it was because a, a while ago we were talking about, how cool it would be to do a workshop for couples who are about to have kids. Yeah. Um, now you got so me going down a Madonna rabbit hole. Now I'm thinking, <laughs> that's true. She <laughs> pop it, now I'm thinking like a virgin. And Madonna really touched on a lot of those, yeah. those, uh, those um, themes, we shall say, about Madonna. But, uh, okay, let me, I got to get moved from Madonna. <laughs> oh, but speaking of what, now, now I'm going to be all over the place. Here we go. I was, my kid was in my room. <laughs> And I don't know why we were doing this, but I went, if you go into music, if you have Apple music and you search for an artist, so I put Cindy Lauper 
And what'll happen is it shows you all their albums and singles, but it also shows you all their videos. And then I went down a Cindy Lauper 1980s video rabbit hole. And oh, they're so much fun. Cindy Lauper very, made very colorful. Oh my God. There was also a live <laughs> version of her singing Girls Just Want to Have Fun. I'm going to share it with you, Ellie. Mm. This woman can sing like I, I have never heard. What For a sure. voice. And this was, by the way, four or five years ago. So she's probably in her 60s. Yeah. Or something. Maybe. Yeah, she's, she's Cindy Lauper is. It's such a special thing. And in the 80s, lately, like everything else, when you're a teenager, if it's pop, you think it's like lowbrow, whatever, it's pop, bubblegum. Right. Yeah. But oh, my gosh, you, she was so talented. And totally. um, anyways, I don't know, Madonna, Cindy Lauper. Let's come back to Fry. <laughs> because Okay, let's do that. <laughs> okay. Um, yeah. Okay. So I, if you haven't heard the song, just a reminder for anyone listening, please go to our Spotify or Apple Music playlist called the Love Examine playlist. And you can listen to any of the songs that we talk about any of the episodes, plus a little favorites and extras thrown in there every now and then. Um, so yeah, Cody Fry photograph. So where should we start? What did you want to pull on? Okay. Well, we should start with the fact that when you first, when I saw photograph, I was thinking Def Leppard. Def yes. Leppard. Photograph. So the lyrics that I want to focus on for today that I thought, uh, was interesting go like this. The light is perfect now, but I can feel it changing. Kids are probably soon. Don't get me wrong. I'm ready, but Will I know what to do when we're no longer two, when us means more than me and you and you? And the reason why I want to focus on this part of the song is because when, when I receive a referral in my practice, and it's a couple, and they're coming in to see me for something in their marriage, one of the things that I look for is the story behind the first pregnancy and the first child, because more often than not, what I find is that whatever happened then with respect to the pregnancy, the decision to have a child, was, was it an accident? Was it planned? How complex the pregnancy was? The first year of that child, were there any miscarriages, were there any abortions, whatever happened during that first kid sets a tone. It sets a tone almost for the rest of the marriage. And so when people come into my office, what, what I find is that a lot of the current gridlock that they're facing is unfinished business from that time period. So it's it's very important to ex explore that. So when he asks the question, which I think is a great question, I think all young couples mm -hmm. should consider this question, but right. we don't. The question of, but will I know what to do? I, I think, I don't know, Ellie, what, what you recall either personally or what, what you've heard. I think that people assume that what we have before kids will just be a continuation after kids. So, right. and, and by the way, people right. do this when they live together. Right. If, if, most of the couples that I work with that aren't quite religious move in together. It's a thing. It's what people do to save money. And what people do is they base, they get married based on that experience. So if we get along when we're living in our condo, then we get married and we assume it's going to be the same. <clears throat> Excuse me. But it's not. It never is. Mar marriage is its own beast. And so I think that what, in a similar way, 
people assume that whatever we have in our marriage without kids, we're just going to bring the same sort of both resources and struggles with uh, as parents. And it, it's it, there. Everyone's in for a, a rude awakening because um, that is. So can happens. we just can we rewind on that for one yeah. second? Because I think maybe before we get to his question, which is, you know, what will we be when us is more than you and me? What does that mean when you say marriage is a different beast? Because I would say the majority of people that I know that don't, as you said, grow up in, say, a, um, a, a culture where you generally wait until you're married before you live with your partner, um, would say, of course, it's the same. I've lived with this person for eight years and now we're getting married and what's going to be different other than a piece of paper. So, but you are asserting actually it's different. And I would say from experience, from actually talking to people who have had that experience, you're right. It is a different beast, but no one can quite explain why in terms of like, I don't understand all that changed was quote unquote, a piece of paper but suddenly things are different. So, you know, I have my own sort of ideas about that, but where do you go with that? Why do you think things change the moment you say I do? Yeah. You know, you know, Ellie, there's this, I forget who it's from. It was a military general. It's always quoted in business books and self-help books. Um, it's a burn the bridges thing. It, there was a general, I forget the story. Uh, they were invading some island and the general said, tie me to the masts and burn the ships. And the, the, the general idea is that even if we get slaughtered, we're going to fight this. We can't go home. Okay. Well, <laughs> marriage is kind of like that. Right. A lot of I people. remember that. I remember reading that very thing. I, actually, it was from a Jewish a commentator, which is understanding that marriage now, you're an army that's surrounded on all four sides. And an, an army that's surrounded on all four sides will fight to the death. Look, there, <laughs> there, there, is something, there is something different when you're in a relationship and with merely a text message, you can break up the relationship. It's not mm. working out. You know, I'm sorry. Right. There's always um, an There's Please always come an pick up. Yeah. Please can please pick up your shirts and your belongings and uh, and that's it. Hmm. There's something so this is one level. So there's something qualitatively different that whether it's a legal document at City Hall or in our tradition it's a ketubah, a religious document, there is hmm. something different about the friction to end a relationship than when there's no friction. Okay, but that's the that's the simplest part. A, a deeper level is this. This is what I've heard in my in my practice. You're dating someone. And you meet their parents. Now, these people mean nothing to you at this point. They're just the parents of the person you're dating. And they're lovely people. And they like you. Okay? And something magically changes when you get married. And the mother of your partner becomes your mother-in-law. Mm -hmm. And I've heard this over and over and over and over again. So mm -hmm. the idea, and I think there's some truth to this, that you're not just marrying the person, you are marrying their family. I think, yeah. I think that's a bit hyperbolic, but I think there's something there. Changes in radical ways, all the relationships that now are part of your life, all the opinions now that are part of your thinking. You see, before mm -hmm. you get married, it was just you and your partner. Generally, your parents and your cousins and aunts and the deaths and the marriages and the illnesses and on, on mm -hmm. your partner's side, 
they're on the periphery. They're not, I mean, you might get involved in a way if you care, but there isn't a feeling of obligation. But when you right. get married, that feeling of obligation creates a crucible and it unleashes a lot of unfinished business in one's own family. So let, if, an example, if you have two young people, they're in their mid twenties and both of them to a certain degree have a certain amount of cutoff. The relationship works great. You're in your twenties, you go to see your plays, you go traveling, you have your condo, you go to the gym, you go get coffee. It's all fine. It's just mm -hmm. you two. And it's, it's a beautiful, beautiful thing in the song. Actually, I think Fry touches on that mm -hmm. when he talks about the perfection, the beauty of just the, the weenus. Right. Being the young and in love. That's right. But right. when you get married, you open up the portal now to all of these other other people, even when there's cutoff. And all of a sudden now you're managing all this other kind of stuff and all that sort of unfinished business or immaturity is, is I, the, the phrase that I have used in this podcast mm -hmm. comes to the fore and no one sees it coming and no one's prepared for it. Everyone's shocked when it happens. Okay. A, a lot of people, you know, I, people I've worked with, they don't understand how the same person, the same uh, guy who was once just a guy who's now my brother-in-law, you know, how, how did they change so drastically three months into my marriage? Well, nothing really right. changed in the individual, but the dynamics of the connection between you changed. Yeah. And one could say it takes on a, a more significant um, import. And then of course, Ellie, there's all the other stuff you know, the finances mm -hmm. and possible parenting stuff. And so you throw all that into a pot and you mix it all together. And it, I don't think it, it's that complex anymore to understand why marriage, and I don't just mean marriage in terms of, again, city hall or, or a religious document. I'm talking about common law, anything where it's, there is no easy way to get out of this, we celebrate things with your family and my family. As soon as you bring in all those players and all that kind of mm -hmm. stuff, it creates a very, very complex system of relationships mm -hmm. that you didn't see coming because when you were just you two dating, right? Your system was very simple. And like any system, when it's simple, right? And things get anxious, two people can generally manage that complexity or rather the lack of complexity. Okay. So for example, if I'm dating someone and they have a family member who's uh, critically, critically alike, I can maybe get, you know, flowers from my partner or maybe even drive them to the hospital, but I don't feel an obligation as their spouse to do something or as the son-in-law to do something. But I can tell you personally, when, after I got married, I'm a pretty self-contained person. As much as I'm a family therapist, I'd much prefer to be by myself. And, you know, I mean, if I have to mm -hmm. choose between spending time with family by myself, I prefer to be by myself. I mean, that's just, mm -hmm. that's my personality. But once, once I got married, um, my wife's family and a lot of the celebrations and stuff, I, I was showing up to, and there's sort of an obligation that I, I would be there. It changes the nature of the relationship in a very, very dr drastic way. In my case, right. thank God, in a good way, I have a mm -hmm. very good relationship with my in-laws. It's not a prerequisite for good marriage, but I work with people where the people that they got along with very well before they got married are now um, very complex relationships Post you're, you're talking about their spouse, of course. <laughs> right? Well, no, I, I, I'm, I'm I know what you mean. I'm just making a joke because, yeah, often, sure, your boyfriend and your girlfriend, it's a, a very different relation than your wife or your husband. I think that's also, for me, part of it is once you get into 
name changes, role changes. Um, it's very hard to project. Okay, not very hard. It's harder to project your issues with your mom onto your lover girlfriend than it is to project those issues onto your wife, who is potentially going to be the mother of your children. In terms of how you view them in your unconscious and the things that you that will bother you about them. And yeah, I think you're right. There's also an aspect, I think, when you marry somebody, there is this kind of underlying idea, like I am now stuck with this person <laughs> forever. And now all those things that didn't bother me because there was always a way out drive me bananas. And now I have to fix them because I'm going to be around this person forever. You know, I think there's so many pieces to that. Yeah. And that's why, you know, whenever I stumble upon uh, an article, um, often it's on the CBC or on Twitter, which is sort of like this postmodern take on, you know, how, um, what's that term? Uh, when some, when you can throw something away quickly, what's that idea when you can throw disposable. something? Disposable. Right. How, you know, like the, the new way of uncoupling or whatever, very quickly and easily mm -hmm. and stuff. Look, it's 2021, we're almost in 2022, and most people in my practice in their mid-20s, or early 30s who get married are getting married for better and for worse, like our grandparents were. No one I know is getting married. And they walk in and say, well, it doesn't work out, man. I mean, it, it, no one does right. that. I mean, it, right. the only people who do that are people who are writing for salon.com, okay? Right. Because most people don't do that. They, there, there is right. still, and, and you can call it a fantasy, call it whatever you want, but we still have this this cultural idea, at least in North America, though I, I would imagine it's like this throughout the world, where mm -hmm. if we are going to go down this path together, in particular, if we're going to have kids, we are mating for life, like whatever, I don't know what those animals are like. There's certain animals that do that. <laughs> do, wolves, do wolves mate for life, yes. really? Yeah, okay, so there you go. Now, um, so, uh, but I, I think the third level of this, Ellie, uh, to, uh, to to make this uh, answer even more long-winded than, uh, than I prepared it to be, the, the third part of this is kids. So right. the once two people decide to bring children into the picture, that opens up a whole bunch of other um, complicated relationships and something we have talked about triangles in, mm -hmm. in families. And where I, where I hope this conversation goes, or at least what I have in my notes where I'd like it to go, um, is that I think there are ways for people who are single or dating to look at their family of origin and the issues that are unresolved there that provide a glimpse of where some of the problems are going to be. That's much more reliable right. than how well you're getting along with your partner during the courtship phase or before you have kids. So what am I saying? You can have two people who are very much in love. You can have two people who have a great courtship, a very non-turbulent dating experience and engagement. You can have a beautiful wedding, but there are issues in their family of origin that will dictate in very clear ways how they're going to handle the introduction of, a, of a, a third person into the relationship that's much more indicative of the problems they're going to have than what their courtship or the planning of their wedding suggests. But what happens, most people flip it around. They leave their family going, I'm, I'm glad I'm away from those crazy people. They look at their courtship and, mm -hmm. and they make assumptions that, well, you know, we, we like the same we're, coffee We're going to do we it differently. We're going to make it great. Or, 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 or just looking at each other. It's like, we, I really enjoy your company. I think this is, th is going to work out really well. 
And not to say that a, a solid courtship, a nice wedding isn't important or might, might be indicative of the future, but there is something about, it, it, you know, in this lyric here, you know, kids are probably soon, don't get me wrong, I'm ready, but will I know what to do when we're no longer two? I think is a very important question to answer. Mm -hmm. My concern, I think, for people who answer this question is they look at their courtship, they don't look at their family of origin, and then they're hit with a whole bunch of complicated issues. Uh, and the last point I'll say on this, <clears throat> it's always interesting when people when I get to talk about infidelity and affairs, because affairs and infidelity happen at very specific times, not always there's outliers, but generally they happen at specific times. When are those times? Well, one of the times that's so uh, um, shocking to people when they hear it, when you say it out loud, is the first child. And people are like, mm -hmm. what? How can someone have an affair during that first child? Well, I, th I think this song by Fry touches on, um, at least alludes to, what are the dynamics around the, um, the susceptibility to falling down that rabbit hole of mm -hmm. straying from the marriage during a time when, at least in theory, you think that you'd be bonded more than ever? Mm -hmm. Well, that's not exactly what happens. And uh, right. I'm, that's where I'd like the conversation to go, I hope. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think that's great. So I, I think the, so we're going to look at two, two directions in a certain way. Like, so how does one look at their family of origin to say, okay, so what am I supposed to be identifying that I should look out for down the road? I think that's sort of an important practical question. How do you look at, look objectively at the family that you come from and be able to identify the patterns that you are probably going to in some way play out and then how do you stop that from happening if it's not going to be the best way to go or change the course of that? And then two, um, you know, like not using your dating relationship as the data that you go on to know what you'll be like as parents together. Because being parents together is very different than being boyfriend and girlfriend. And, um, and I think it'd be good, you know, if we can touch on, um, because I see so many couples go through this and I remember going through this, like, you know, suddenly there's no time for each other. Suddenly you don't want that person touching you because you are like, as a mom, you have a baby on you 24 seven, right? Like there's all kinds of pieces to that, that, so it throws everybody into insecurities and everybody into needs that are being unmet and everybody into this sort of high anxiety, um, immature place. So how do you navigate that? So first, how do we look back and note, like, how do we pick out the things we should be watching for that we ourselves will repeat? And then how do we stop them from repeating? And then, you know, what does it mean then to be parents rather than just boyfriend and girlfriend? Yeah. Well, I, first of all, you've touched on a lot, a lot of the issues. I, I would just reverse engineer this a little bit. So I, mm -hmm. I tend to think of it like this. I don't know if parenting unleashes uh, insecurity as much as the insecurity was there. It just wasn't recognized. So mm -hmm. let me give you an example. Right. Generally, when people come together, we've talked about this before. So for those of us who've listened to some pop parenting or here, this will be a common theme. Um, but the, the, the movie I always turn to is Jerry Maguire. And so this idea that we come together because there's something about you that 
that fills a void within me. There's something vacuous within me that I meet you and beyond the sexual attraction and that we like the same music and that we have other similarities, but there's just something about you that I feel more powerful with you. I feel more complete with you. You complete me. Okay. And of course, the same thing, it, it goes both ways. That's, that's how people make it to the third date, ninth date engagement. And if you think about that Jerry Maguire idea, you complete me, what, what you have is varying levels of, remember that game, Ellie, you play in camp or school where they say, okay, Ellie, stand up and I want you to lean on your friend, Mary. So Mary stands up and she leans on you and you're both, your backs are touching. I remember, mm -hmm. And it's like that mm -hmm. trust, it's like that trust idea. So right. Mary leans on you and you lean on Mary. And if you guys stay like that, you can, I mean, so long as I guess you're your, your blood pressure <laughs> right. Plummet, right right you can you can stay yeah it's like structurally that, sound it, it's perfect it's structurally sound you, you right. guys can stay in that position for a long long time but as soon as you or mary gets itchy with that a, a real itch or uncomfortable and you move because of the way you're leaning on each other the whole house of cards crumbles right so Couples have varying level of degrees in courtship, but how much they lean on each other to prop themselves up. The more you tend to lean on your partner for a sense of whether it's, I need you to tell me I'm attractive. I need you to make money so I don't worry about money. I need you to be an extrovert so I can go out. The more I lean on you. Now, here's what's counterintuitive, Ellie, what's so beautiful about this. The romantic idea of love is a lot of leaning. So right. Right. I can't live without you. Right. And so it's a funny thing because a, uh, the couples in my office, when they have problems down the road in their marriage, they, just don't understand, they didn't see it coming because they will say it was so good. What happened? Right. It was right. So or good we're supposed to lean on each other. Well, like, they won't say that. that what they, the they relationship won't. is for. Yeah, I but they won't say that. They won't mm -hmm. say that because they, they know somewhere that that's maladaptive. What they'll say is. I just knew what they wanted and they knew what I wanted. And it was just so symbiotic and it really sort of worked so well. How come they won't give me what I want or, or, or how come they're so reactive to me or whatever the case may be. But the thing is, the thing is to be able to respond to your partner's needs and wishes so instantaneously that you know them so well requires a lot of fusion. It requires a giving up of self to a certain degree because my orientation is towards you and your orientation is towards me. And in a lot of ways, it's very delicious, especially, you know, when, look, I mean, I, I, it wasn't so long ago where I was single, sitting in bookstores, reading relationship books and feeling pretty lonely, right? And the right. idea of just meeting someone was so warm and delicious. I mean, it really is. It's like a warm, a warm mm -hmm. blanket. And when you find it, especially in the beginning, there are parts of it that's, that's um, delicious. The problem, of course, is that if I need that, so it's not an option, but I need this to stabilize myself. When right. you decide to have a baby, when you decide to have a baby, and as you said before, and I think you said it very well, the, the attention, in, in this case, it's often the woman, the attention goes towards the baby. So here, here's, this is important though, Ellie, this is very important. This is something mm -hmm. I think people miss. If you have two people who've been leaning on each other, 
let's call them two very anxious people, but they, they regulate their anxiety by, by sustaining each other in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. The relationship sustains them. Their anxiety will go in opposite directions at the exact same time within about a day or two. So you have to imagine where you have two, three years of, of I give you and you give me and we prop each other up. And all right. of a sudden, within a couple of days, now the, it's, it's funny because it depends. If you have a, a pregnancy, it's a complicated pregnancy, of course, and in cases that women I've worked with where they're, they're very nauseous or tired, you know, or complications, mm -hmm. you can see the seedlings of where this is going because they're mm -hmm. sick and they, they don't want to have sex and all this sort of stuff. And so you'll see the immaturity in, in assuming a heterosexual relationship here, you'll see the immaturity in the, in the male cognitively. He knows, of course, she's not, of course, she's going to pull away, but emotionally he's freaking out. I work with these guys. Right. Right. So in his head, he's sophisticated enough. He took his, you know, psych 101. Right. Thing, you know, U of T. Right. Right. Like logically, it makes sense. But emotionally, it's a it's a disaster. It's Emotion chaos. Emotionally, he does not know how to regulate his anxiety. He was he's not prepared for this. And he right. starts getting really anxious about how she's pulling away. Now, when the baby comes, what you have is a situation where, in many cases, the mother's anxiety is channeled into the the cooing and the holding of the, and she's getting all, like she's getting this That's right. unconditional, the baby's looking to her eyes and it's like, she's just enraptured in this fusion with her baby. And what Dr. Bowen said, there's an element of a primordial part of, of our being mm -hmm. that creates that connection, but there's an anxious part too. Mm -hmm. where you neglect all your relationships and everything is this baby, right? Mm -hmm. And the guy's walking, walking around the apartment going, well, I, I'm not much use here and I'm not, I'm not being right. popped up at all, right? right? And I've noticed with couples who are really immature and anxious in this way, they're pretty good for the first couple of days, but by week five, people get itchy. Mm -hmm. And the bickering starts and the fighting starts. Mm -hmm. um, and this is this is where uh, certain things kick in. So I'm going to just read off a couple of points here, some some points that I, I, uh, I jot down. Mm -hmm. So what happens at this point is you can sort of see the core level of maturity in both partners um, at around th this stage, the combination of sleeplessness, you know, you're you're fatigued, you don't got the same energy reservoir, you're not propping each other up, you can see more of a core uh, character of one's um, basic level of functioning at this point. I think also depending on how many acute stressors are happening in the pregnancy will also exacerbate um, how how much of a challenge it is going to be for these two people to navigate that. The more complicated issues are in the pregnancy, the more complicated the relationship is going to be, in particular for people who, who are used to propping each other up. Okay, so you, you'll see this. You see this, for example, there's between a complicated C-section pregnancy versus a vaginal birth. It, the the, the C-section requires a little bit more, um, maybe more than a little bit more recovery time, right? And so couples will buckle under that strain. The, the, the guy is going to have to pick up the slack more, right? Where uh, four or five years before that, he might have been used to her doing certain things or being a certain way, and, and that's no longer there. And if you're used to being propped up in a certain way, you're going to get itchy. You're, you're, you're going to become uncomfortable with that, even though in your head you're thinking, of course she needs a break. You know, I know that here, but in my heart, I'm feeling quite itchy about the whole thing. And I would say 
the, one of the most important things at this point also is how much cutoff is on both sides of their family. The more cutoff there is on both sides of the family when a baby comes in, the more the two people in the relationship are going to try to manage all of this on their own. And that's- so let me just like, let me just translate for people who don't know what cutoff is, the idea sure. that, um, you know, depending on how connected you are to your extended family, meaning, are you speaking to them? Are you interacting with them? Do they live close to you? Are you friends with them? Do you talk to each other? Do you, um, are they supportive? Are they involved? Like, so cut off being like where there's no contact, no speaking, no support, all the way to, you know, the other end of the extreme, which um, Avam in your practice you refer to as fusion, where you talk to each other every five minutes, they're always in your business and you can't really get away from them. But that somewhere in between there is a balance of individuality and support. And, yeah. And what that balance looks like depends. So that's what you're saying. Depending on whether you're in total cutoff with your um, your your own parents or total fusion will depend on how much support and help and um, feedback you have to support you through this particular time. Yeah, and just to give you a very practical example, I mean, there's a lot of layers to this, but just for the sake of this conversation we're having, just a very practical example. Um, when when I, when Elise and I brought home our first kid, my father was in palliative care. He was dying. So that was a big stressor on me, but not just a stressor. He wasn't a resource to me. Um, my mother lives in Montreal. She was coming in, but she wasn't here yet. Mm -hmm. And Elise's parents live in Vancouver. Now, even though there's no cutoff there, there was right. enough physical distance that when we came home from the hospital, we were both operating at this point on two hours sleep, each of us. Mm -hmm. And I'll never forget, we came into the hospital. Izzy was, he wasn't colicky, but he sure wasn't sleeping. Mm -hmm. And we just looked at each other and we just broke down. Yeah. And we're pretty sophisticated people in the world of mental health. You know, as people who listen to this know, my wife's a child psychiatrist. I have experience. And we just broke down crying. Like this is just, <laughs> I don't know how I'm going to do this. And Elisa mm -hmm. uh, called her sister and said, we need help, and we need help now. Her sister was over at our place within 20 minutes, mm -hmm. came over, took Izzy, stayed up with him all night. She was watching whatever she was watching on Netflix. Right. And Elise and I can get five hours sleep, change the complete trajectory of how that week would have went if we didn't have right. a family member come over. As trite as that sounds, as silly as that sounds, that could make the difference between a week where if it was just Elise and I, managing this on mm -hmm. one hour sleep here, two hours sleep there. I don't care how great the love is, how good the sex is, how much you love each other, how right. much premarital work you've done. You start operating on one, two hours of sleep a night after four days without help, you're going to fight. And, and not only fight, it's going to get really, really nasty because it gets into that whole, I need, I need, and it can get really, really ugly. And that's where I see when, when young couples are in my office, they say, mm -hmm. I cannot believe what she said to me. You know right. what she said to me? Right, because you're in the Need Olympics, right? And no, and neither of you budges, and nobody's going to be the first to give because they want to be the first to get, and then you're stuck. And, and by the way, you both feel, and, and rightly so, you both feel like you're going freaking crazy, right? Because you're so sleep deprived, right? Mm -hmm. and, and and never and and the woman never mind sleep deprivation, right? At this point breastfeeding might be easy, but for a lot of women with the first kid, it's very hard. So you're feeling, whether it's emotional, you feel incompetent that you can't do this thing and your breasts hurt and you just feel lousy, right? And, and you're the, hormonal on top and, of that. All that. And the, the guys walking around <laughs> no going, sleeping. you know, right. I, I remember when I got my first diaper, I, I, 
what do you do with this thing? Mm-hmm. I remember watching a YouTube video on my iPhone and I'm trying with, I couldn't get the tape going. And I'll never forget when Izzy, you know, peed in my face. You just feel like an idiot. You feel like an, you feel like an absolute moron. We're like scaring every single young professional that's listening to this right now. <laughs> it's like the total. That, that's okay. The but I, yeah. But I think that also, you know, this is partly why I think it seems to me that one of the reasons that marriage is referred to, as you say, as a crucible for growth is there's no there's lots of tests to a relationship but certainly one of them is being responsible for keeping this kid alive when you're barely functioning yourself and and that you each need support from the other and nobody's in a position to give it Um, i I would add one other element though ellie onto this that i think is critical and we've touched on this before there's a level of um let's call it attachment theory parenting that's out there. This idea that, you know, you got to give so much of yourself and connect because if you don't, you know, your, your children are going to be messed up, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you, you, I think there's qu- quite enough books and, and, and parenting stuff out there that would suggest right. that, you know, if, if you muck up those first zero to three years, I mean, your kid, your kid's going to be a big trouble. So you have these parents with this tremendous amount of pressure to do, to be a good parent. Sure. But what's, what's always fun to do, I think, is if you ever watch, go to the zoo, you know, there's a new baby, a new baby zebra. or So everyone goes to see the baby zebra in the zoo, right? If you watch the mother and the father, there's, a, I, I always, there's always a part of me, it's like, they really are nonchalant about the whole, like, they're just like, kind of like, you know, the gorilla, the gorilla just lies there. It's like, you know, you want to put the nipple in your mouth, fine. It's eating a leaf. It's like, it's not even like cuddling the thing. It's like, and the baby's like, pulling and the dad's off taking a dump at the other side of the cage and it's like it's like they're both sitting there with parenting manuals like reading exactly what to do right and and there's something funny um funny and somewhat tragic about how much anxiety we bring in so there's that other layer of parenting that i, I don't think it was true for our grandparents or great-grandparents that modern sensibilities, sensibilities bring in now which is a tremendous amount of pressure to be a better than average uh, parent which um I, I think causes a lot of problems as well Hmm. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I do think it's interesting also because there isn't the same amount of pressure to be a good parent as there is to be a good partner. You know, we don't, we talk about parenting as this very highly pressurized verb. I don't think we think about partnering in the same way. I'm curious, what what would inform that thought for you based on what? You know, like being a marriage partner, a boyfriend or girlfriend. The level of anxiety that I see around it. I think that the level of anxiety I see around being a partner is worried that things are going to end or they're going to break up with you. But I don't see that there's a level of anxiety where people are going like, oh my gosh, am I really being like the best partner I could be? Like if I'm not a really good partner, this relationship could really like you know, suffer. Whereas we do that with our kids. Oh my gosh, am I not being the best parent I could be? Am I ruining this kid's life? We don't say that so much about relationships. We just say like, is this working for me or not? Um, and yeah, I, and I'm not sure I see the same anxiety around marriage as I do around parenting in the same way. I, I think you, yeah. I think you get more of that in the courtship phase during dating um, but you, you're probably right. Job. 
No, you're, you're but probably... I don't think people worry like, oh my gosh, if I don't do a good job, this relationship isn't going to succeed. It's, oh my gosh, if I'm not like, if I'm not dressed properly or behaving properly, this person isn't going to like me. I don't see the same pressure around relationships as I do around parenting. And I think that's interesting. Yeah, no, I think you're correct. I think that's true. I, I want to just come back uh, to the, the question about uh, family of origin issues and how this might be a benefit. The family of origin piece that I think is important here would be when when you you know you're dating and you're in courtship and you're, you're talking about your your family. I I encourage young people, couples who are in the new phase of their relationship, to inquire about who are you connected to, who do you feel close to. Questions like that, who else other than a good friend do you turn to for for guidance or if you're having a problem? And when when the idea is that um, there is no one that I feel connected to in my family, and I am so glad I met you because you are giving to me everything that I didn't have in my family, those should be huge red flags. If for no other reason than if you decide to have children one day, that person will not be there for you. They cannot be. You can't do both things at the same time. You can't sustain a life of a baby and cater to every single one of my partner's whims and needs, physical, right. spiritual, sexual. Just doesn't work. Can't happen. It's never yeah. happened. The priority has to be the baby. Right. And the the more you need your partner to be a certain way, the more itchy you're going to be about when that attention moves away from you. And I have to say, and I don't mean to be a downer here, but the, the work is a little bit too complex and hard to do when the baby arrives. So this is stuff that has to happen before you have kids. Right. And this comes back to something, Ellie, we've talked about, and maybe we'll, we'll chat about this in a different podcast, you know, about what, what would be required for a comprehensive, you know, premarital work, or what does one need to do during the courtship phase to prepare for this? You know, I don't think you can cure this, but I think there's a lot of work that one can do in one's family of origin to prepare for the inevitable challenges that are going to come in when you have kids. So this is just one of right. these rare songs that touches on a very subtle, nuanced, but very important part of uh, relationships, long-term committed relationships that um, doesn't really get addressed in music. And I'm not even so sure how much it gets addressed in marriage workshops and parenting workshops, but um, yeah, I was yeah, I think he asks such a great question in that song. I think it's such a great question in terms of um, what is the maturing work that we would have to do to go from two to three and still have it feel like us. Yeah. And if you're having IVF, it might be four. So just remember all you Good folks point. who are getting married when you're 39, 45, 46. Good point. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. It's a big jump. It's a big jump. <laughs> Amazing. Okay. Thank you so much, Aram. That was really fascinating. And I'm really happy we got a chance to talk about this. Um, that's the playlist song for this week. Please, everyone listening, remember to subscribe and share. If you want to see more from Avram and myself about all of these topics, you can check out our uh, our other podcast, Pop Parenting. 
Um, if you want to hear the songs that are on the show or see a sneak peek at what's coming up, check out the Love Examined playlist on Spotify and Apple Music. Uh, if you have a song you think we should absolutely talk about or a topic you want to hear us riff on, please send us a voice message. The link is in the liner notes and let us know why you think this song should be on the playlist or what your story is behind it. And we'll include your message and song on the show. If you have a love, dating, relationship, or marriage topic you want us to discuss, please send us an email at the Love Examined podcast at gmail.com. Thanks so much. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye.